Our partner for this episode is Sean Clausen Coop, co-author of Building a Better World in Your Backyard, instead of being angry at the bad guys. I recently interviewed Sean about the book and think, if you're already practicing permaculture, it's a great source of inspiration to turn your energy into steps you can take each day towards achieving your goals, whether you live in the city, suburbs, or countryside. Inside, you'll find ways to grow more food, reduce your energy needs, and live a more comfortable, bountiful life. Building a better world in your backyard is also a good introduction for others to the ideas of permaculture. It's on my short list of books I'd recommend to anyone wanting to introduce their friends and family to what this permaculture thing is all about. Learn more about the book and pick up a copy today at buildingabetterworldbook.com. I also have a giveaway in partnership with Dan Palmer of Making Permaculture Stronger for his upcoming Holistic Decision-Making course. If you're interested, send an email to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com with the subject HDM to enter. And you can find out more about that class at holisticdecisionmaking.org. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My interview with Jeff Speck left me curious about what the details Jeff mentioned look like in practice. So to follow up on that conversation, I sat down with my guest for this episode, Steve Nigren, founder of Serenby. Serenby is a model community located half an hour south of Atlanta, Georgia. Bringing together a diverse group of stakeholders, Steve and the others instrumental in this project created a suburban town based around conservation, preservation, and nature integration. And so during the conversation, Steve shares his vision of what one model of sustainable suburbs can look like. This includes the actions, policies, and practices necessary to pull it all off. Enjoy this conversation with Steve, and I'll join you again after. Then Steve, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, and how you came to Serenby? I grew up on a farm in Colorado. We were generational farmers from the 1860s uh, along the Front Range by Boulder. Then I went to the University of Colorado in architectural school, uh, and then switched over. I was seduced by the hospitality industry from uh, part-time jobs. And so I started working part-time for Stoker's Food Corporation, and then in, went into their management program, and then into their opening hotel team. And they are the ones who moved me to Atlanta, Georgia, back in, in 1969, way back when. I fell in love with Atlanta, stepped off that treadmill, and opened my first restaurant in Atlanta in 1973. And this was the beginning of a complete full food culture change in America in local fresh food. So we uh, grew that then over the next 22 years to 36 restaurants in eight uh, states. And then I had three small children in the early 80s and started really reevaluating my life due to uh, journeys to our weekend farm on the edge of Atlanta and connecting back with nature, uh, the very thing I had run away from as I left for college, pulled me back in and, and it reminded me of how important connecting to the earth is. And during that same time period that I had left Colorado and of course went back for family reunions and funerals and weddings, I saw what had happened to the front range. The, the farmland 
and the fields and the vistas of the Rocky Mountains that I'd known as a child, the ditch banks we played on, uh, were all gone. It was now urban Denver. And so that really was the stage that prepared me for what I was about to do. I had no idea as I became concerned about urban sprawl in our weekend farm that had then became our full-time home in 1994. And it was in my seventh year of retirement that I decided that I was not going to let this beautiful rolling hills of Georgia uh, be destroyed like I had seen the fields in Colorado and the area around almost every urban center in America and even around the world. So that, that gives you a, a, a real thick, fast kind of summary of what brought me to where I am today. And one of the things I'm interested in is to know a bit more about you and Serenby and what you're doing there. Because as permaculture practitioners, we're looking for ways to take direct action and create the world we want to live in. So could you share with us a bit more about Serenby and the intentional design that went into this space? Absolutely. Well, this started out to, to save literally my backyard. And the first thing was, you know, buy land so somebody else wouldn't infringe. But at 900 acres, I realized I couldn't keep doing that. Now, we had really created our own paradise. So, you know, our organic farms, while I, I, I never use the permaculture term, that's exactly what it was and how we restored the old farmhouse rather than tear it down, the old barns to reuse them. Uh, the organic gardens, everything we were doing. And this entire area had generational farm families, which if you look at how we lived 80, 90 years ago, they didn't label it, but it was certainly the permacultural way of life. Uh, you cared about the earth, you knew your neighbors and cared about them, and you were not wasteful. I mean, goodness, anyone who lived during the Depression, you didn't waste anything. That was just a way of life. And so this is what my, my years of retirement had really brought. And so I, I didn't want to lose this and that connection. And when I realized that I couldn't afford to keep buying land and that 900 acres certainly didn't protect us in the path of urban sprawl, I looked at models. And a dear friend was Ray Anderson. Ray formed Interface Carpet after reading Paul Hawkins' books. He realized that the carpet industry was one of the polluters of the earth, and he was the first industrialist then, uh, U.S. industrialist, to put his company interface on a carbon-neutral path in 30 years. Uh, because of Ray's high profile, when the White House created the Council on the Environment in the 90s, he was the first chair. Ray has been a dear friend for years. In fact, uh, his stepson's godfather to our 32-year-old. So he's a dear friend. And at the dinner one evening, when I was in this quandrum of what to do, uh, I said to Ray, you know, you, you know all the smart people, and this is around 2000. I said, who do you know that could come here and help us figure out how we can protect this beautiful land on the edge of Atlanta? And he asked the Rocky Mountain Institute. And so Ray and the Rocky Mountain Institute assembled 23 thought leaders in September of 2000. And this was a fabulous two-day discussion. Georgia Tech documented this. And it was frustrating to me while I was delighted to have all of these major thinkers in 
in land use and energy and water. And it was where I first heard the term biophilic design. I didn't identify anyone who was going to help me save my backyard. See, I had, I had been uh, on all the big boards and I had worked hard for a lot of social change. And while we made fractional change, it was frustrating. And so I'd retreated and, and I had that very pessimistic attitude. And so I had moved back in that, you know, I'm just worried about putting a fence around my territory and who can help me save it. And of course, Ray nudged me on to look at other things, meet people. And a meaningful time was visiting George and Vicki Rainey in Prairie Crossing outside Chicago. They, had, uh, they were just a few years ahead in having started that. And somewhere over the next six, eight months, Ray had gently pushed me through that threshold of passion. I realized there was a lot of common sense not being followed. And this maybe wasn't that difficult. It was just no one was doing it. And what was I going to do? I couldn't find anybody to help me. And, and as Ray said, if not you, who? If not now, when? And, and, and I woke up one day realizing that we were going to change the zoning on this greater area. And we were actually going to build a model community to show what could be done. And that's what led me into changing zoning on 40,000 acres. We brought 500 landowners together, pro-development, land speculators, preservationists, the groups who battle on zoning in court. We brought together over food, in nature, and over a two-year conversation, we came together united on the vision we had for this 40,000 acres. So often when I hear these conversations about zoning and the creation of projects, it's usually on a smaller scale measured in single or tens or maybe hundreds of acres. How did you come together to get this buy-in from so many different people across such a large area? I listened. I understood why everyone wanted what they wanted. And so for our development community, which I began really focusing on because that was your largest landowners, those people with the largest holdings were the ones who were going to actually dictate what was going to happen. You just look at what's happened in every urban area. Well, they're really not pro-development. They're pro-highest value for their land. And we have tired thinking that the best value for your land is to develop it. And we're not looking at the stacked layers, for instance. You know, coming from Colorado, I I saw all those scattered layers of mineral rights and water rights and air rights. But, you know, in the South, you don't think about that. And, And still everywhere, even Colorado, development seems to be the highest thing. So as I was doing my research and thinking about this, The Urban Land Institute was doing research on why we were building so many golf courses in the 80s and 90s. Our golf course development was certainly outpacing the sport and the people playing. And so they did a great research and found that the bankers, the financial community that was funding development, loved the spreadsheets on golf course communities because those lots brought a higher premium than any other lots being developed. So they were willing, anyone that wanted to do a golf course basically was guaranteed funding. So the Urban Land Institute 
did a study of the people who were buying those premium lots. And they found that 92% played golf twice or less a year. So what does that tell you? They weren't buying it to be on a golf course. They were buying it for the open views and to be on green space. You know, and people weren't thinking about how chemicalized those green spaces were. But it was the only really green space that was being put on the market for housing. And so I was able to bring that to my pro-development group and say, look at here. What if we could bring you a higher value without the expense of installing or maintaining a golf course? And I got their attention to listen. And also, I was able to show that high density, which was the new trend in walking communities, this is where we're headed, that you could put more housing per square mile than we had been doing, and your infrastructure costs were less. So I had them interested in talking. Then in the preservationists, I said, hey, there is no way we can raise the money to get ahead of the development. I had already talked to all your traditional preservation groups to see if they were interested, and they're just barely staying ahead of any development. So they're not interested in an area where the development pressure hasn't already been pushing against it, and they only have X amount of money. So I said, if, if we could work with the development community, we could probably save more than you would ever imagine us being able to do. My model was the countryside of England, because after World War II, they put good land laws in, because they realized they couldn't afford that urban sprawl that they had somehow the vision that the rest of the world was getting ready to indulge in. And so that was my visual image, but of course, bringing English land law to a property right southern state was impossible. So we worked with the University of Georgia primarily, also with Georgia Tech and Texas A&M to, to bring principles and zoning laws that could end up with the same result. The, the incredible tool in our toolbox is transfer development rights. I knew Boulder County, Colorado had put these in, as well as Montgomery County, Maryland. And so we brought leaders from those two governments to help educate our local officials and, and our state people on what this tool could mean for us. And so you look at it, it's all pretty common sense. You know, how are we going to care for the earth and how can we create better places for our people to live? And so with that foundation, we move forward to bring in zoning laws and land use laws to make all these principles that we were talking about a reality. I'm not familiar with this idea of transfer development rights. Could you speak more about how this was necessary for the kind of development you were looking to move forward with? Well, if you look at, at, at urban sprawl, what happens is development starts coming in and the, the smaller landowners especially are pushed out. They don't have a voice. They can't afford the increased taxes are going up because as the area develops, the value gets higher. And all of your uh, tax appraisers, their, their task, responsible task, is to appraise the land for its highest and best use. So <clears throat> irregardless of, uh, of what's going on there, it's taxed at that highest and best use. And so we lose all of our farms, all of our woods, all of our natural areas around our urban centers because of this one thing. There's nothing to compete 
with the dollar of the development community. And because we got into a rut in buying the cheapest land and leveling it to get housing after World War II. So the, the 50s was full of just how fast can we get housing on the ground? And we've stayed in that, in, in that rut thinking. And so what we looked at is how can you transfer the value of that land if it's for development, how can you sever the development rights? Just like you would sever a mineral right or a water right. And in Montgomery County, Maryland, they have sort of put a, a line through the county. And the area closest to Washington, D.C. can be densely populated. But the area away from it, they're trying to save it. So it's set up that... They have a, a, a bank it, it, through the county. They purchase development rights from the land they want to save. And so that is an attachment to the deed that you can no longer put houses on that land. It has been severed. And then they sell that to developers who want to create density in places that are not zoned to be that dense. Now, the big thing you have to do is local officials have to freeze the zoning density. Generally, areas density is increased over a state dinner with a city council person and promise of higher taxes. And they just give the increased density away. This puts it in the market system to where you have to purchase the density. And it puts it between the landowners there could be a, a county bank or a nonprofit bank that's the intermediary. And so this, this allows small landowners in the path development to monetize their land without losing it. And it's just this wonderful tool that just fewer people understand. Boulder County, in the county, they just basically said, okay, <laughs> we're going to put this in place. You can save a quarter acre here and then transfer it to the quarter acre across the road. So in, in Boulder County, it's sort of a patchwork quilt, especially if you look at it from the air with your big mile sections. You'll have a quarter acre totally developed and then across the way, it, it's not. So for us, we wanted more of that countryside of England look. And so we came in and said, you can have dense hamlets or villages and they can scatter throughout our 40,000 acres. There have to be large buffers on our country roads. And then you can move that density around within the city. And we have what we call hamlet zoning. You have to have a minimum of 200 acres. And within that 200 acres, you have to save 70% of the land. But you, you get one uh, development right per acre and so in that 30%, you put all 200 housing. So it's a more dense, like a European village, like America was in the 1800s. And what we are looking for today for walkable, connected communities, that's what you get. If you have a village, you can develop more of the land, but your base zoning is still one house to a unit but you can take it up to 36. So for every acre you develop to the maximum density, you have to save 35 acres within, the, within our city. It, it's a simple concept, but it's kind of hard to grasp if it's the first time you've heard about it.
With 36 units on an acre, that's fairly high density, while still preserving the green space around you. I think of when I was growing up in the suburbs, it was every house on a half acre, plus all the extra roads and individual driveways and resources necessary to sprawl out in that way, while this placement that you describe reduces the need for all that. Right. The green space that you do preserve, is that then open to farming or use within the community? Yes. So it's open space that can continue in any agricultural allowed category. So it can be farmed, it can be timbered, it can be equestrian, it can be recreational, all of those things. And part of that process of getting your zoning changed was not only to allow for the density and those transfer development rights, but also the agricultural improvements to use that land in the future? That's right. So, you know, step one was to bring the the community together. So 500 landowners, we created the Chattahoochee Hill Country Alliance, and it was a dollar per, it was $2 per acre to join. So across the lake. Basically, this showed the support we had. By the time, two years when we took it to our local commission to vote on the land use changes, we had 80% of the landowners paying dues into our organization to move these principles forward. The 20% that didn't support us also never opposed us. They just stayed home. And today I call them the armchair critics because they'll, they'll never come out to educate themselves on what you're doing. They'll never oppose you. But man, if you find them on their front porch, they'll tell you everything that's wrong with it. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we see those loud voices uh, all over America, certainly. And so number one, we got the land use change. Then with the land use change, we had to bring in zoning that could apply to it. And so our county threw out all the zoning they had for towns and, and developments. And this was rewritten uh, with, with our assistance and the universities in what was zoning. So bringing back things like, like Live Works, which had disappeared from our zoning laws. We have one intersection here that, that everyone loves. And after tours with planners, city officials, developers, I'll stop in that intersection. And by this time, they're oohing and aahing at our street lamps and our granite curves and connection to nature that we have, everybody's back door. And I say, well, you know, chances are this intersection is illegal in most of your zoning codes today. And oh, oh no, we're very progressive. So, okay, well, you know, if, if you do allow single family houses next to attached, that's good. And, and then how many of you have live works? Well, that's becoming increasingly and say, okay, so if you're progressive enough that, that you have this mix across from the street from each other, from single family attached and live works, how many allow residential across from commercial? And hardly any official opens their, raises their hands. Now, that intersection exists in almost any community pre-1930. And yet we have sanitized all of our zoning regulations to the point that we've taken the vitality out of where we live. And you mentioned single family as well as attached housing. Do you have a variety of mixed development to allow for a range of living options? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have everything from, uh, you know, carriage houses with apartments to townhouses on, on an, a grade that allows the the lower level to open into gardens, and those are apartments many times. With, and so that leaves 
that, that gives a revenue uh, source so somebody can maybe have more real estate than they realize. Uh, we have apartment building, condominiums, the uh, complete range. We partnered with Auburn University's uh, architectural department with their rural studio. Are you familiar with that? I am not. And that is affordable housing with architectural integrity. And we were the first partnership in 30 years to develop cottages for uh, what we call the art farm. And that is the campus for our visiting artists. And so by taking this approach, then it creates a community that addresses people from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, not just your original developers or landholders. Correct. So Serenby now is, is a town. We have been nestled in a agricultural community where the economic engine has been stripped over the last 50 years. Our neighboring town, Palmetto, has stood still since 1950. And so we are an area where there's, you know, incredible affordable housing, a depressed tax base. And we have been able to bring in first executive housing, but then housing for a, a variety of price ranges. And it's a mix, and it's been mixed in a very natural way. It isn't that the million-dollar houses are down one street and the $300,000 are another and the rental properties at another. It's all mixed with a true community, and and no one really identifies who, who lives where or who has what wealth or anything like that. And with bringing all these people together to create Serenby, what's your vision for this community in the years ahead? We are certainly continuing in creating this, this wonderful village in the midst of nature on the edge of Atlanta, 25 minutes from an airport. So the thing that, that I hadn't thought about is the people who have moved here. And these are people ha- who have hope for a better future. And they come here and they understand the environmental prospects, what we call biophilic principles which parallels very much with permaculture. I mean, it's caring about the people and all living systems and our earth and nature and how we all are so connected to one another. And so one of the great environmentalists here a couple of years ago said that Serenby has done an incredible job of attracting thought leaders and influencers from various industries to just a great place to live. And living here, they've learned these principles and environment, and now they're taking those out into their various areas of influence and changing it. And so that's one of the greatest things Serenby can do is be a model to show that these are common sense principles, and we need to get out of this rough thinking that we've been in. And, you know, there was a time that, that I gladly would, would have coffee with anyone interested. But I soon realized I was running out of time and we had to separate the dreamers from the people who really had the resources and the will to make a difference. And so we set up our consulting firm of migrant placemaking. And now we're literally helping people around the world who want to follow this and make a difference in where they are. And we have examples and I call lights of consciousness that start shining in various places. We can change this world from from a local perspective, if everyone would start worrying selfishly about their own backyard, those backyards can expand. And eventually all of our backyards are going to join. 
I think we're spending a lot more time pointing our fingers worried about things that are happening that we have absolutely no control over. So why spend our energy doing that? There are so many places in our life where we can take our passions and strengths for what we already do and look around us and apply it where we are to build this more bountiful world we're interested in. Absolutely. That's what we have to encourage people to do and empower them to do. You know, I think about, you know, what's that first step? Most people are just overwhelmed with, with the thought of change. And so they retreat. And during the pandemic, I think this is, this is really causing a lot of people to, to think differently. And, and I love the one story that someone shared with me that what's happened to our suburbia is we've moved from no front porches to back decks. And we only know our neighbors by maybe waving at them as we're driving our car into our garage. And now through the pandemic, we've come out of our houses and looked around to see, you know, who else is alive. And one great story is these people that pulled their deck chairs from their backyard to the driveway leading to their garage so they could see the street activity and kind of wave at people, that, that lonely isolation feeling. And that led them to, to get to know their neighbors in a different way, to realize some of the issues, and they've decided to run for the local school board. That's the kind of thing of the first step. It might be so simple as pulling your lawn chair out front uh, and getting to know who else is around and what their common concerns are. Increasing our community engagement just a little by placing that chair on the front porch or in the driveway gives us more access to our community and what's going on. That's right. And it's essential. And, you know, we have been everything that you believe in, what we believe in, no matter what label we put on it, is the importance of the individual people and the importance of nature. And we need as people to connect to both each other and to nature. Yet we've been building places that disconnect us from both of those for the last five decades. And now we wonder why antidepressant sales have increased fourfold each decade for two decades. We wonder why we're sicker than we've ever been. We wonder why life expectancy has suddenly peaked and turning the other way. It's pretty simple when you look at it, but we've got to change this and realize that it can be changed. And it's pretty simple and common sense if we just would start taking that first step. And for anyone who is interested in that first step, once they get to know their community a bit better, are there any resources you would suggest someone read or watch or become familiar with to continue their thoughts on these ideas of bringing the intersection of their community and nature together? Well, it certainly depends on wherever your passion is. And there are a lot of areas. I mean, you could hear about our story. We've created a, a podcast, uh, Serenby Stories, where you can learn about my journey through this. If you look at agriculture, the Rodale Institute, they have been in this space since the 1940s when they became concerned about what chemical fertilizers were doing to the soil and the food we were going to eat. And Rodale now is opening their Southeastern Research Center on a neighbor's land right here at Serenby. But Rodale Institute out of Pennsylvania is a good, is, is one of the best concerned about uh, soil health and or organic food. Richard Louvre, 11, 12 years ago, brought the research together on how our kids were being disconnected from nature and living in such structured environments, uh, both socially and the physical places that it was affecting their brains. And he wrote Last Child in the Woods. 
And now that has evolved into the Children and Nature Network. And they have an incredible resource library that's open to everyone online. And they do conferences, and that's Children and Nature Network. And that is an incredible place to see. If you look at Wholesome Wave, they're doing a lot to bring organic food into the underserved community through their entire program that they work with local markets and local farmers. There's just a number of resources and organizations that are in these various spaces to make a difference. We formed the Biophilic Institute, and this is to work a lot with policymakers and educators so that we're starting to, to really understand some of the foundational things that have to change and how we're thinking to have a more responsible world as we move forward. And as listeners connect with those people and organizations making this happen, do you have any final thoughts before we draw this conversation to a close? I believe if everyone could touch back into hope, I think we have to turn off the national media because it's filled with fear and that's how we, they sell airways and, and print media. And I believe if we connect more with our neighbors, we start finding that there is hope and they, we find that we as individuals can take those first steps no matter where our passions or where our concerns are, don't just stand and complain about it. Figure out what we could do, no matter how simple it might be, whether it's growing fresh tomatoes on your backyard to getting involved in, in your city council or school boards. You know, and, and for a few, they have the capacity to, to get involved in, in offices, political offices, state offices. But where is your capacity but everyone needs to know that they can do something, no matter how small or insignificant they think. Because if everyone did that first step, no matter how small, we would have a changed world. And we've become into tired thinking where we're overwhelmed and it feels as though too many people are just frozen into where they are. Well, thank you for that, Steve. Everything else you've shared with us and for joining me for this conversation on the Permaculture Podcast. Well, thank you for all you're doing to, to bring some of these issues forward and, and, and to get people to think in different ways and, and realize that there can be change and how important some of the concepts you have with permaculture really are to our daily lives. And that was Steve Nigren. Find out more about him and Serenby at serenby.com and the podcast Serenby Stories at serenbystories.com. As I prepare for the end of the year, and consider the direction of the Permaculture Podcast in 2021, I've been reviewing and typing up my notes from the last 10 years of classes, workshops, and interviews. While working on this, one of the recurring themes from my teacher training was that permaculture education should focus on how rather than what. In this way, we look at a site, design, or solution holistically from the top down, rather than in a mechanistic, one-size-fits-all, reductionist fashion. This was on my mind while editing this episode, and that what Serenby offers is a model that reveals the ways, as Steve shared with us, that we can adapt the methods of this project to bring something similar and wholly unique into the world. By looking to what exists, we have a concrete guide to what is possible. So when we engage to preserve or create more green space where we live, we can point to places like Serenby. We can advocate for transfer development rights to increase, rather than decrease, housing density, 
and the work done in Montgomery County, Maryland or Boulder, Colorado, as further examples, and from them, discuss whether the holistic or patchwork results of one versus the other would work best in our community. If we live in an area without a lot of places that allow us to connect to nature, we can work with organizations like the Rodale Institute or Children in Nature Network to adapt our specific place and situation to create a more bountiful, verdant, and integrated world. In time, what we do today can be an example for others in the years ahead. But those are just my thoughts in the moment. What are yours? Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Write Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. From here, there are only two episodes left in the year. Next up is a conversation with Joshua Hughes to check in about his work with Black Sheep Regenerative Resource Management and the recently launched Rewild Organics. From there is the final episode of 2020, a look at the future of the Permaculture Podcast. If you'd like to join in the conversation, including the Permaculture Podcast Discord, join the community at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Until the next time, spend each day creating community while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.